Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. Okay, today a calming voice from your Instagram feed becomes real. Julie Minano's The Secure Relationship Instagram account is a touchstone for many folks in the TMSC community. You told us it's a place where you get real tools and come away smarter. I think that's pretty great because, let's be real here, there's a ton of glib, pop psychology, and low-nutrition feel-good stuff out there. Julie Minano has taken her deep work as a couples therapist and scholar and turned it into a feed that's operating at a much higher level. In recent years, the concept of attachment styles, anxious types, avoidant types, have creeped into our consciousness. Julie brings these concepts and other ideas like attachment needs, emotional safety, healthy vulnerability to life in a smart, accessible way for almost half a million followers. Her book, The Secure Relationship, and her latest, Secure Love, are shining a light on ways we can be more centered in our relationships and how we can just enjoy them more. I loved spending time with her, and I hope this conversation gives you fresh inspiration in your relationships. Enjoy. So, attachment theory. Can you explain it uh, and how it fits into the field of relationship study? Sure. So attachment theory is looking at relationships through the lens of the human biological drive to feel safe and connected to close others. I won't go too far into this, but you know, early humans needed to stay close to stay alive. And we still have that in our DNA. We still, and I don't know that that would ever change, right? I mean, we still, for evolutionary purposes, we still need to experience closeness and safety in our relationships to be truly happy. You know, it's more than just biological. I personally think there's some sort of spiritual, whatever that means to everybody, component of it. What does that mean to you? It means to me the expression of some greater love that exists that's bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's very fulfilling to express that energy and to receive it. And I think underneath it all, we all crave that. It's just how aware of are we of that craving and how do we go about getting that meet those needs met. And so according to attachment theory, in order to feel safe with another person and close to them, you, you need to have certain needs met. You need to feel cared for. You need to feel valued. You need to feel wanted and like your needs matter to them. And not just emotional needs, but does do my opinions matter to you? Do my perspectives matter to you? Even if we don't agree, you know, are you going to be there for me when I need you Mm -hmm. Uh, is a big one. Can I get it right for you? Is, can I be successful for you? You know, if, if we have a relationship where the bar just keeps raising, 
that person never gets to experience success in the relationship and that's demoralizing. So we have these human attachment needs and when they're met and there's a climate and I'm, when I say met, I mean a climate of met needs. So San Diego has the greatest climate, you know, in in the country, in my opinion. And it still has periods of weather though. It it still has storms. And Mm -hmm. so I want to see that climate of met attachment needs and knowing that there's always going to be storms and earthquakes or, you know, things that kind of come up and disrupt that, but the couple can repair from that and go back to their climate. So if we start having storms and unmet attachment needs storms, let's say being the norm, then we no longer have a climate of safety. My goal is to use the theory to help people reach each other and maintain a steady state of met needs. And when those needs are met, we feel safe and close with an individual. And it, and it, you know, you feel safer with someone in general when you when you feel validated by them or understood or like your opinion matters to them. And in attachment theory, there are types that yes, are, maybe a spectrum. Do you, would you uh, say it's more of a spectrum? I think that in a given relationship, most people who are insecure are going to fit one category more than others. And yes, I do think it's a spectrum, but I think that spectrum is more of, you know, like the anxious has a spectrum from highly anxious, disorganized anxious to secure, not to avoidant. And within that anxious attachment, you might see some isolated avoidant behaviors But underneath that, the anxious partner has a deep fear of abandonment and the avoidant partner has a deep fear of not getting it right, not being seen as successful. And that's the biggest myth or the biggest misunderstanding, mm -hmm. I think, about avoidant. Oh, right. Yeah. They're really misunderstood. It's really hard for me to take that sometimes. Yeah, so. yeah. We maybe we'll we'll dive a bit into that, but mm-hmm. and and it's all based on in attachment theory. It's based on early experiences. For the most part, you know, you have to think of it like this: uh, a child is going to be with uh, a highly impactful other person or other other caregivers for you know eighteen years. Let's say you know fourteen to eighteen years during the highest period of development in their life. So we right. can't ignore that level of impact. However, we do also go on to have other relationships that are impactful and those can play a part. Absolutely. And those can shift things around. But what I see in my clinical practice is that the vast majority of people are carrying this stuff from childhood. When you're raised in an insecure environment and you have an insecure attachment, you're more likely to get involved in relationships that reinforce your insecurity anyway. How is this area of study different than other sort of fields of study and relationship? And why why do you like it? I think it's different than other perspectives because we're, we're really able to understand the true motivations and intentions of conflict and relationships. Mm. And without attachment theory, we don't have that reference point. I mean, we kind of have a vague idea that people aren't happy but we're not honing it down to the real nuts and bolts, which is these attachment needs, which is when I'm in a moment, any, in any given moment where I feel invalidated by you, my nervous system is going to react to that because something feels really unsafe because I need to know that you validate, you can validate me and see me to feel safe to you. And if, if I'm not safe with you, I'm feeling threatened and that's scary. 
and I'm going to have to do whatever I can to get that safety back. And it, and really you're, you know, what avoidant, an avoidant person is going to do something different to get safety than an anxious partner or a secure partner or a disorganized partner. So right. when we're talking about the attachment styles, we're talking about how the, they are going about getting their needs met and not just that, but also what's underlying their drives. What kind of fears are they, are they dealing with? What kind of meanings are they making of events? And that's just as important as what we're seeing on the surface. Yeah. The meaning making. <laughs> yes. And, and a lot of times when we talk, when more surface level attachment education, maybe online, they're, they're looking, they're kind of focusing in on, on surface level behaviors and there's a lot more going on with that. And that's why some people can have a hard time figuring out what their style is. Why did it speak to you as a, as a therapist? What was your education? What sort of schools of, of thought did you study in your education and in your practice? Before I went back to grad school, I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years to six kids. And oh. um, yeah, so all- I knew all the, I knew the six kids born, part, but I, I yeah. didn't put together the, the stay-at-home for six kids. Like, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I was home and it was a, it was a lot and I was really overwhelmed and there were, um, I had them all in a 10 year span. So I did not know what I was doing with my first two, had no idea. I was really overwhelmed. I didn't, I didn't grow up in an environment where I really learned a lot of communication skills. And so I really got into attachment parenting and my third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, I wore in slings all day. I slept with them. I just really fostered that secure attachment. It really worked too. Mm. And so that was kind of my first, you know, familiarity with attachment. And then I went back to grad school. This was 2011. Most master's programs were not teaching attachment theory. So I was just kind of learning their stuff on the side and getting through it, which was cognitive behavioral. And then I was just immersing myself in my own time with object relations theory, which is like the precursor to attachment theory, Mm -hmm. psychodynamic theory, just really Mm -hmm. learning all I could. And then that really kind of segues into attachment theory. And it was my second year of grad school, I read Attachment in Psychotherapy by David Wallen. Mm. Are you familiar? You look like young. And that that changed everything. Yeah. And I started, I I wanted to do individual work, but I had to see a couple, I had to see couples to get my license. So Mm -hmm. I saw a couple and I was like, this is crazy. I don't know what I'm doing. Immediately flew out to Bozeman, Montana to get the first round of EFT training that exists, you know, the the first one I could find in the country and never took another individual client on after that point. Really? I fell in love with couples work because it worked. EFT works. Working from an attachment theory, it's amazing the progress you can start having with a couple really early on, even with relatively little skill. I mean, you're not going to save a couple that early on, but you start realizing when you go from having sessions where you're, you're not in control of the session and nobody's feeling heard and you're they're fighting and it's all over the place to having these beautiful connecting moments. And it's, it's all the EFT attachment. I'll just say attachment based therapists that I know we all feel like it's just very addictive. Yeah. Can you explain EFT for people? Yes. Yes. EFT was, it's emotion focused therapy for couples and it was developed by Sue Johnson. She was the person, her and this other man, Les Greenberg, who is no longer, they're no longer affiliated, but together in the 80s, they took attachment theory and turned it into a couple's therapy modality. 
so they, so she's absolutely brilliant. I mean, she was able to say, here's, here's what you do. Here's the steps. You know, it was like an instruction manual, but much more complicated than that for using attachment theory to treat couples. And so I learned, you know, that's what I, I do is I study EFT and use it in my practice. If there are limitations that you see in this, this framework, what are they maybe? Um, I'm going to be really honest. I think the limitation of the framework is that it's extremely, EFT is easy to learn, extremely difficult to master. Mm. And so you can only go so far with it until you start mastering it. And I think what happens is a lot of times EFT therapists learn great validation skills, great connecting skills, and they're really able to provide these beautiful experiences for couples, but but they're not sustaining it outside of the session and things can start to stagnate. And so I think it takes a very, very, very high level of training to really get the job done with EFT, depending on also the distress level of the couple. You can't use EFT in in situations where there's really extreme abuse taking place that's very one-sided. I mean, a lot of couples that are in distress are are abusing each other, little a abusing each other, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, some fighting. Without Um, unconsciously or consciously or both? Well, I I think when nervous systems are escalated, we're going to do things just very impulsively. I think it's not subconscious because we know we're doing it. I don't think- But it feels out of control, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of ways to be abusive subconsciously. But that, you know, even even some physical violence is tolerable with this model, as long as it's even and it's not causing real harm Serious and the injury. kids aren't involved, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there's always that weird line of like, where does this cross and where is this not appropriate anymore? And do you need to go? And if that's happening with my couples, I'm going to refer both of them to some individual work. Yeah. which I always refer out to somatic experiencing because that helps yep. them yep. regulate. So, yeah. So I would say um, if, if a couple, if they're not invested in the emotional health of the relationship and staying together, EFT isn't the best modality. And if there's that level of serious abuse addictions, if someone has a, an addiction, they're not able to participate. And then we call competing attachments, active affair, Anything that's getting oh, okay. in so the an way. Okay, so an addiction would be called a competing attachment. No, no. Um, well, an addiction could would be. be a form of a competing attachment. <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay. but a competing attachment could be workaholism. It could be an active yep. affair. Anything that's taking so much emotional energy out of the relationship, the relationship can't connect while that's going on. Oh, I have so many questions. Okay, so yeah. can you give an example of a sort of set up for EFT, like a like just to give people an idea, because I know for me, I need to imagine how something might work, like an exchange, mm-hmm. like you have a couple sitting there, they have X problem. How do you set it up? If they're saying to me, I have, we, this happened, we had this fight. Yeah. Is that I mean, and you saying? can like, even, where do I go? you can pick an example of a fight just, just to give people a taste of, okay. it, it, I want it to feel real. while we go into it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hone their experience down to a moment. We work, I work with moments. Mm. Okay. So, because I want to dissect that moment and know everything about what was going on inside of that person that led them to react in the way that they did. And then I want to understand how that impacted their partner. And then I want to understand how the impact of the partner was now a trigger that 
you know, set into motion a cascade of events on the partner. So I'm going to say, all right, right there, you hear him say, why didn't you take my clothes to the cleaners? This is such a stereotypical. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. We'll go with it. Sexist, traditional. (laughs) Give me something else. I can't do that one. (laughs) No, I know. It's kind of painful for all of us. How about you spoke over me at at dinner with friends? Okay. All right. So we have to have a trigger, right? So I'm going to work with the trigger of being spoken over. So I'm going to say, all right, help me understand what that meant to you right there. Like you're getting, you're sitting there and things are well and you're, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're getting, you're getting spoken over. What goes through your mind right there? And they're probably going to say something like, well, I just felt irrelevant or I felt like if it's an avoidant partner, they're going to say what they thought. And then, well, no, I am asking them what they thought. Sorry. Yeah, um, so okay. they're going to okay. say later when I say, what did you feel? That's when they're going to say what they thought. Um, yeah. So they're going to say, well, I felt little, I felt disrespected, you know, okay, that, and then I'm going to really validate that. I'm going to say, I really get that. Like we all, I mean, I, you felt disrespected. I felt disrespected. So we all know what that feels like. And And I can see how feeling disrespected is going to cause some stuff to get stirred up inside of you, especially from your close, your person, right? Mm -hmm. You want to know that you're out with these people and that you're feeling you guys are a team and you're connected. And when that happens, it's devastating. And then I start validating that and really just trying to say, you know, what else is coming up with that disrespect? What, What do you notice in your body? One technique I use that I learned from my supervisor, George, is what is it like for you when you feel respected by your partner? Give me a moment when you feel respected. And then they Mm -hmm. might say, well, when they bring me coffee in the morning. And I'm going to use that one for real because my husband brings me coffee. Yeah, that's a big one for me too. Right? Yes, I feel loved. And okay, great. Now what's happening? Yeah, pure love. What's happening in your nervous system right now as you think of this experience of having this loved one, your, you know, your person in life, your man bring you coffee and you, you what is that like? Oh, it feels warm. You know, I can feel it in my body. I'm mm-hmm. sure that you can. That's that zone that's really good for you is that warm place where you're feeling loved and respected and wanted and cared for. And then I'm going to say, so so shift over with me to those moments when you don't feel respected. And immediately their nervous system is going to follow that and, and go up, right? Yeah. I'm going to say, so this is how painful it is for you when you're feeling disrespected. And then just to give the fast version, I'm going to say, what do you do right there when all this is welled up? You're feeling disrespected. Your chest is tight. Your muscles start to feel tingly. You feel hurt and sad. What, what do you do right there? Well, I shut down. I stopped talking. All right. I get that. Because what are you trying to do there? You're trying to say that hurt or you're just kind of, you don't know what to do with these emotions. So you just kind of slink away, right? You go into a cave to be safe. And then I really just keep you know, it, it, depending on where they are in the therapy, if they're later on, I might say, the problem is, is what happens? How does that land on Michelle? Yeah. You know, when she doesn't maybe know what's going on and she just sees you retreat. And because they've been validated and understood, they're far more likely to be able to step into their partner's world. Whereas if I would have just started and said, well, why were you upset? What did she do? Well, she just ignored me. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to see the, I'm not saying this in, in the best way possible, but they're not going to be able to step into their partner's world yeah, until they, they, what they received, received that yeah. from me. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. so they're, they're going to say, 
that then I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I want you to tell her what we just talked about. I want you to say, when you saw me shrink away from you, when you saw me shut down, what was really happening is I was hurting because I didn't feel seen by you. And then that partner that if that's an avoidant partner saying that they're showing up emotionally the way that they may never have in their life. Yeah. And so their anxious partner is going to just melt. Yeah. Because they've been craving this. So I want to I want to go yes. into the the types and sort of the high level behavior in relationships. Before you work with a couple, do you assess their attachment type or do you sort of absorb it through observation and do you tell them, look, you it's, you seem like an avoidant uh, yes, type or disorganized type? Yes. With I don't know, 80, 90% of my couples, maybe more, I instantly can see it. It's, you know, once you get <laughs> how to can know you see the it? Signs, so that's a good way to go in. Like, how do you see it? What, what is an well, avoidant? A really look like? common way, a really common way is who's calling me and anxious. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. There's some caveats and twists to that I won't go into, but a really common way, and this is, you know, I don't mean to shame any people who go into therapy or my couples or anything, but this is really common where they come in and they sit down and I say, all right, well here, you know, I'm Julie. I introduced myself and I say, well, what brings you here today? And the anxious partner looks at the avoidant partner and says, why don't you start? (laughs) And they're saying, are you going to show up? Are you invested? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the too much one and take up all the energy. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm used, I'm used to being too much. So, and then what will happen is the avoidant partner will kind of stammer through and kind of stammer around. And then the anxious partner will start talking and then continue talking for a lengthy amount of time. That's a really common way. And that's not always the case. Sure. So. Of course. We know yeah. there's no always is we will say that up yes. front. So how high level, how does it, an anxious partner show up? How does, and what does that look like? And what are their, since you said, talked about motivations, let's do that. And, and then avoidant and and then disorganized. Sure. Okay. So the anxious partner is trying to close the distance in the relationship. That's their overriding goal. The avoidant partner's goal is to keep things from getting worse. Let's just maintain, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the anxious partner is very aware, hypervigilant, very connected with the state of the relationship, very aware of what any, anything the avoidant might be doing to kind of imply an abandonment on any level, usually filtering for the negative, seeing what they're doing wrong and kind of missing the cues that they might be doing right. Like they might miss the coffee every morning and focus on the fact that they didn't text right back. And so they are going to try to get their needs met in kind of predictable ways, which is protesting, telling you what you're doing wrong. Like if I can just get you to see what you're doing wrong you'll change and we'll be okay. But it just, it doesn't come out. It doesn't land like that. It sounds like nagging or complaining or attacking yeah. or being frustrated yeah. all the time. Yes. Yes. And and for good reason too. Mm-hmm. And just the strategies don't work, but for good reason. Some anxious partners have a hard time with physical separations and just be really aware of anything that might kind of imply an abandonment or a letdown. Uh, Lots of, with some, you know, there's a spectrum with some, there's a lot of testing behaviors because Mm -hmm. they grew up in environments where they could never know if their caregiver was really going to be there for them. It was inconsistent. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. And so they're testing, they're saying, are you going to be there for me? Are you going to be there for me? 
trying to get this emotional safety, they can really only feel that safety for five minutes and then they need to test again because they don't have the capacity to hold security. And a lot of times, you know, most of the time they're in a, in a relationship with a partner who's avoidant, who also can't really show up for them. So, and I'm always looking at to what is coming from the individual partner's past and what is coming from the reality of the relationship. And it's always a combination of both. Right. Because some, because often there are actual behaviors that Absolutely. Even objectively are threatening. Absolutely. They come into the relationship with this, you know, kind of baggage for lack of, lack of better word. And then they reinforce a lot of times what, what they're coming in with. And then it takes right. a life of its own. So my job is to pick all that apart and figure out where's this all coming from and work through those blocks. Okay, great. Avoidance. All right. So the avoidant is going to be very sensitive to criticism or being seen as not getting it right. That's their core fear is I I need to be seen as getting it right for you. I need to know you see me as successful for you. And if I don't, then I start to kind of shut down and get demoralized and don't know what to do. They get overwhelmed by the expectations of the anxious partner, even realistic expectations. They have very little contact to varying degrees with their own internal world. So it's very difficult for them to show up for anybody else's internal world. Their strategy is just stuff it away move on, pretend it doesn't exist. And then when they get in a relationship with an anxious partner who can't do that, they, they just, they don't know what to do. And yeah, so they get overwhelmed. They might shut down. They might stonewall to express anger. There, some avoidant partners can be kind of explosive, but a lot of times what happens is they hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. And then it's, it comes out sideways and passive aggressiveness or even kind of biting humor, you know, mm-hmm. one thing I need to help avoidance do is just start finding their emotions and putting words to them, even, even negative ones. When I'm really doing good work and the avoidant partner is able to say that I was really mad or I, you know, the anxious partner actually likes that because they know it's not going to come out at them later and they're showing up. What is the conditions in early childhood that contribute to an avoidant versus say you explained anxious attachment, you know, they couldn't mm-hmm. count on it. They, they weren't sure. What does that right. look like for an avoidant? For an avoidant, it's more consistent. It's more consistent ignoring of needs. It, and so when the, when the child is reaching for connection or comfort, they're just not going to get it back. And a lot of times avoidant parents are really good at taking care of external needs, school needs, physical needs, but they're not able to be emotionally available because they don't know how. The anxious one kind of always has a little bit of hope, right? Like maybe this time I'll get a yeah. response. I can get loud Because they had enough. it sometimes. It's like a, they're, they, they've had pieces of it or moments of it or days of it or weeks of it or whatever, but it's exactly. not. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they've it's been to not, the top of the mountain, <laughs> but yes, they don't, they've been they to never the stay there. Absolutely. They never stay there. And so they get just really hyper focused on it, on it. And so, but with avoidance, what they learn to do to stay safe, what anxious partners learn to do to stay safe is constantly in a, in a state of awareness. And, mm-hmm. you know, I keep saying hypervigilance. With the avoidant partner, what they learn to do is they learn to stuff it down, don't have the needs, don't be in contact with the needs, but still maintain some physical proximity. This is for the younger, you know, kind of sit next to the mom and play, but be really yeah. quiet. Don't demand. Yeah. Deal with it on your own. Yeah. And so they're getting safety from that. It's a second best safety. 
Right. But at least they're having some sense of safety and strategy. And that's why we consider anxious and avoidant organized attachments, even though they're not the greatest. They're at least organized. There's some strategy where they can stay safe. And it's consistent. Their strategy is consistent. (laughs) I'm going to go towards you trying to bridge the gap or I'm going to pull away. Am I right in this idea or maybe I'm making it up that uh, avoidant uh, behavior could also come from like an overbearing uh, yes. enmeshed. Yes. Thank you for, yes. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up. That it can become, come from intrusive parenting that, you know, demanding that they share their feelings and then that avoidant child just starts to, to feel icky and it's too um, much. It's too much. And so they start shutting down and shying away from that. Yeah. Um, okay. When there's an intrusive piece there, there's different ways that that's going to show up later on in adult relationships. Mm -hmm. It's going to be like an aversion to connection Mm -hmm. as opposed to just an inability to connect. Mm. To be, I mean, this is interesting, but we do consider anxious and avoidant attachments. I mean, those are, a person can be healthy, kind of globally healthy and still have an avoidant and anxious attachment. It's when we start getting into disorganized that we start finding lack of health. Okay. So, so let's talk about disorganized. All right. So the disorganized, so we go back to the anxious and avoidant. They have strategies that kind of work. They develop an organization inside of them. Disorganized kids, they don't, they don't have any hope. They're constantly in a state of nervous system escalation because they have a conflict between their intense biological drive to seek connection and comfort from their mother or father or caregiver and this fear of doing so, because by doing so, they're going to get a really negative response. It's either going to be a frightening, angry response, a just complete rejection, mm-hmm. uh, a dissociated parent, a punitive response. And mm-hmm. sometimes, even if the parents are, you know, not gross, you know, grossly negligent or grossly abusive, they might be in a social situation or an economic situation that creates chaos in their environment and the parent can't be available Yeah, and they can't reach the parent. There's no one to even reach for. And so they're just kind of stuck in this, this state of inner turmoil. That's just at a higher level than what we're going to see with anxious and avoidant children. And the, the number one factor of a caregiver that creates an anxious attachment, I mean, a disorganized attachment is unresolved trauma. Mm-hmm. And so if the re- trauma isn't resolved, meaning that that person can manage the feelings, can talk about the trauma, cannot yeah. dissociate from the trauma, then they're not going to have those trauma triggers. Yeah. And those trauma triggers are going to show up in the parenting. So not yeah. everybody with unresolved trauma is going to c- create a disorganized attached child, but that is a ver- that's the most common feature. Predatory behaviors of parents, if they're gr- you know growling at their kids or mm-hmm. glaring or showing teeth, that's very scary for children, especially young children. Um, parents who use the child as an attachment figure or sexualize the child because that mm-hmm. takes away their wiser, stronger other. They have no one to reach for. Parent, wiser, stronger other. Okay. We want yeah. a wiser, stronger other that children can go to for comfort mm-hmm. and protection. Exposure to domestic violence with no comfort. Mm-hmm. Now, children are, re- are resilient. Children can handle trauma. They can handle a lot more than we think as long as they have comfort and it's processed with them in a healthy way. 
And so disorganized children are getting, are, they're, they're watching that. their parents hurt each other, but they're not getting any comfort. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. Do you see people change significantly over time? What are the trajectories that you usually see when you're successful and they're successful? And what happens in the cases typically where they're not successful? Well, so a successful avoidant is going to be able to recognize an emotional experience, put words to it, show up with their thoughts and feelings in an authentic way. They're going to learn how to comfort their partner's distress without trying to fix it, without shame spiraling. I know I'm so terrible. I shouldn't have done that. You know, they're just going to be able to show up emotionally, give comfort, not feel distress by their partner's distress. Now we want empathy where you can feel some of it, right? But we don't want them to get overwhelmed with, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. You're too much. And they're going to not need to escape from conflict. They're going to be able to hang in there. They're going to be able to just know more parts of themselves, access more parts of themselves. And we might actually, as people approach secure, they do start playing around with other behaviors. So you might see an avoidant start becoming critical or blaming, right? But it's going to be at a lower level, but that's them showing up and learning about this other part of themselves. They're trying it on until we can kind of balance it out. And we might see anxious partners do the same thing. The anxious partner is going to be, so both partners are going to start co-regulating each other, meaning that they can go down, Mm -hmm. get into Mm -hmm. that window of tolerance. You know, when they do that, they help the other partner do that. And I have to be the one to do that at the beginning. I have to be in that window. And then I'm, they're, I'm co-regulating them, right? And they start to co-regulate each other. And so the anxious partner is going to become better at self-regulation. Like, okay, yeah. I need, I'm, I'm feeling irritated and frustrated. Let me get my nervous system down. Let me get myself out of this panic mode. 
before I show up and try to initiate this conversation. Because if they don't, they're going to go bow up and be spinning out and it's going to get them into their negative cycle. And so the anxious partner is going to start to have more realistic expectations, start to feel lovable, start to trust love. This is really important. Both of them are going to be able to reach for reassurance when they're triggered by old Mm. stuff. So Mm. let's say the anxious partner comes to the avoidant, and this is later stages of therapy. And they say, you know, I want to talk to you. I'm kind of triggered by something. But at the same time, I'm afraid if I bring it up, you might think I'm too much for you. So can I just get some reassurance right now that sometimes I can have complaints and have requests from you without being too much for you? And I've worked in on him enough that the avoidant partner is going to be saying, yes, yeah, I, I can give you that reassurance. You're not too much. And the avoidant version of that is going to be, as you're bringing this up to me, I'm starting to feel that urge to kind of just shut down on you. And I don't want to do that. Yeah anymore. So can I get some reassurance that even though you have a complaint, you don't see me as just a global failure? No, I don't see you as a failure. I can reassure you. The failure piece kind of blows my mind with the avoidant, that it can be really hard to have compassion for the avoidant behavior for how it looks because it seems so cold and it seems so dismissive and you know all Mm -hmm. of that. But the failure piece, the fact that they feel like such a failure is, is really helps me have some compassion. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole goal is to have compassion and empathy and really understand these little children that are kind of running the show in these triggering moments. And in other ways, avoidance are, they're really, they're like a hamster on a wheel inside. You don't see Mm -hmm. that. But when they did the original attachment studies with babies, the avoidant children were more escalated because at least the anxious kids are expelling their energy. (laughs) And so giving it out to everybody. It's like, like they're like exercising, you know, they're giving it out. They're externalizing it. The avoidance are just holding it in. They have high blood pressure, heart attacks. Both of them are doing this, but avoidance, for some reason, it just feels more appropriate to say this about avoidance. They're always trying to stay one step ahead of shame. Mm. It's just right there lurking. And they're always just kind of staying one step ahead of it. Whereas the anxious partners are definitely shame driven also, but they're trying to stay one step ahead of losing connection and abandonment at all times. It's like, yeah. And so as we build up their communication skills and their ability to reach each other, they just start to become secure. And then that security starts to bring resilience to the relationship in and of itself. And you start seeing them get stuck in these patterns and these negative cycles less often they can interrupt it and they can repair from it fast. If you identify that one or both people have a severe or even a moderate addiction, Mm -hmm. what do you do? Will you, will you work with them? Is it It, possible? It depends. Yeah, it is possible. Um, I have, you know, worked a lot with different types of addictions from porn to alcohol one thing that I kind of require is that if it's, it's really at a, a big level, if it's getting in the way of that person's functioning, and if it's getting in the way of their ability to be present enough in the relationship to actually work on the relationship, then I will have make sure that they have some sort of management strategy going on outside of the couple's work. Sometimes it's 12 step. I, I do have some 
complaints about the 12 step because sometimes mm-hmm. I think that might, they might be kind of shifting out of that shaming perspective, but mm-hmm. whether it's a 12 step or whatever works for people to keep the addiction stable, to keep them from drinking, sometimes it's individual therapy then I can do the couple's work. But obviously I can't do couple's work if someone's using in the session because they just, they can't, they're not there. They're not present. Do you think couples can actually heal if one person has an active, is an active addiction? No, I don't. I mean, I think it depends on the degree of the addiction, but if that person isn't able to be present, that's not healing. Can they stay together and kind of function together? Sure. But they're going to have a, a real challenge to feeling close. And, and again, we're talking about degrees because yeah. people who have active addictions might have periods where they can be close. And, but it's just, I mean, there'd be so yeah. much stress in the system that it would be very difficult to have optimal health. How often do you see addiction show up? I don't see tons of it. And that could be the community I live in, the demographic of who I treat. I, I would say, maybe let's say 10 to 15% of my client load, I would consider having an active addiction. Addictions are, are intimacy disorders. So when you're lacking intimacy and you grow up in a home with no real connection and not, none of the good emotional stuff, you're either empty for it and you use alcohol as a way to get it or, or drugs or, or a way to feel good because you don't get yeah. the other good stuff or to distract from the pain of not right? having that. Yes. Yeah. And so when I can get couples really strong with each other and connecting and getting that good stuff in the relationship that we start to have less need for the addiction to play that role of numbing the lack of n- intimacy or numbing the pain of, you know, relationship stuff. Johan Hari said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And that is something I, that's like on the homepage of my, my company website, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the sobriety support community that, that I created. And what we talk about constantly is connection and connection and connection. And we know intuitively that what that means, you hear that statement and you go, of course, oh, of course. But when you, add that extra context of it, of an intimacy mm-hmm. disorder or disordered intimacy. And, mm-hmm. and God, it's so fascinating. The ways that we resist intimacy mm-hmm. are so many and so complicated mm-hmm. and so real that it's amazing we ever get there. Well, the resisting in- intimacy paradoxically is, is trying to get intimacy. I know, but it's so like, yeah, yeah. I mean that, especially in our culture, I want to do it alone. I want to do everything alone. I want to Mm -hmm. step into the world of a person that wants to do it alone. What do you think that person's going for trying to feel by doing it alone? Oh, well, I know I am that person. Uh, Okay. So you've gotten a lot better, but I, but I know it's, I don't, for me, it is, I don't want to need you. Mm-hmm. If I need you, that means I'm weak, one. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be weak. Being weak is dangerous. It's shameful. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing. And if I if I need you, I depend on you and I, I can't do that. I, right. 
that, that will disappoint me at the very least. Yes, at the worst, yes. at the worst, it will put me in danger. Right. You're risking rejection. Yeah. And, I, and that's, right. that was the thing of a, above all to avoid for me. I can't handle you rejecting. Me. So let, so let's shift that around and say, how is all of what you said an actual drive to feel connected? How are those avoidant tendencies driving to feel relationally connected? And if you can't answer it, I'll answer it for you. No, no, no. I, this is great. Like I know intuitively how they are, but I want to be able to say it. So give me a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah, take Um, your time. Well, one thing that comes to mind is if I'm perfectly Mm self-sufficient and whole and perfect enough, Mm -hmm. you will want me. Yes, there you go. I'll be acceptable. I'll be acceptable. You you won't be able to reject me. Yes. Yeah. I'll be acceptable and I don't have to risk being abandoned. So I'll be safe. Right. Right. So it's, it's like we have all these twisted strategies for getting closeness that, that can even look like a rejection of it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of is a rejection. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it does. And so kind of circling back to what I do with couples is I would have you verbalize that to your partner and say, you know, can I get some reassurance right now that if you see this kind of weak part of me, or if you, if I ask you to help me with this, that you're not going to see me as weak and unacceptable to you. Getting to that point, like you said, the avoidance yeah. sometimes can't even get there because they're just, it's too mm-hmm. shameful to even say those words. Yeah. It's just awful. I, I wouldn't have been able to get there at some point. I want to just put this out there so we don't feel hopeless around avoidance. The vast majority of avoidance can get there. So I just want to put that out there. Avoidance are really actually easy to work with most of the time Mm. once you get them in the door. The reach for reassurance is what that you, let's say you, talking about you, missed out on in childhood. Had you had a relationship with your parents, had they been able to give you that support, they would have already been telling you that. And you would have developed core beliefs around everybody needs help. This is normal. We all need help. We all reach. So you're kind of like that. That's how I'm, I'm helping these partners be secure bases. I don't want to say secure parents because we don't want parent child dynamics and a romantic relationship, but we're, we're helping them be the secure base for each other that you are acceptable. Me. I love this. I don't, I'm going to say weak. Okay. I love this weak side of you that needs my help. You know? Yeah. I love that part of you as much as I love your strong part. Let's um, just end with you telling us about your upcoming book. Okay. Well, I have uh, The Secure Love, and Mm -hmm. it should be released late fall. I decided not really to do a long narrative about what attachment theory is, because I think most people just need the basics and have Mm -hmm. a felt experience of it anyway. And then I go into explaining the different attachment styles and graphs as far as how, you know, the, the environments that can create. The, a, a caregiver behavior, the message picked up by the child, how is this going to show up later in adult relationships, just to help people really connect the dots. Yeah. Uh, and then I go into a step-by-step program of how I'm ushering a couple through therapy. Mm. So I just am really, what I'm trying to do is take the process I use with couples and put it into a written format where they That's can awesome. go through that on their own. 
you know, can I can't say how effective that's going to be. I'm going to have to assume that it will be really effective for a lot of people because of the feedback I'm getting from my posts. So it's kind of like taking all the information I have on Instagram, consolidating it, organizing it, yeah. and expanding upon it in a book. And then yeah. I have at the end, people love scripts. I mean, again, they're controversial. Yeah. I get a lot of comments about them sounding inauthentic. I'm like, look, guys, you got to use your own words here. I mean, I can only put yeah. it out there generically. But, right. um, so I don't be it. literal. You don't have right. But yes, scripts are amazing. Yeah, scripts can be really helpful just to, ha- know, to have an idea oh, yeah. of the words that you could use. Totally. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's like, it's so helpful. I mean, I remember when I was a parent, I didn't know what I was doing. I just needed words to say. Yes. You know, yes. I just, I didn't know, need to know the idea. Okay. I need to validate them. I need to blah, blah, blah. I need to help them regulate. I needed to know what am I supposed to be saying? Cause I never learned these words. So no. that's really my motivation there. So the, the last part of the book I really love, cause it just goes through like any kind of a situation, your partner is annoying you. Here's five options, you know, oh, that's awesome. of what to say. And so I hope, I hope it's good. I mean, I, I do think I feel pretty proud of it and I hope that it's really helpful. You know, it's always, I'm sure you can agree vulnerable and hard to put yourself out there, especially, I, you know, my, one of my daughters is a really good artist. And I was like, imagine mm. if you like entered an art contest with the stuff you made three years ago, like you've learned so much since then. So it's yeah. like, well, I will look for it. And thank you so much for coming on. This was so wonderful. It was, this was great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.